Learn Persian with Chayan Conversation. Growing Up Iruni Interview with Kisu Hariri. And welcome to Growing Up Iruni, an interview with Gisu Hadidi of the incredible New York City-based architecture firm Hadidi and Hadidi, which she co-founded with her sister Mojgan Hadidi in 1986. My name is Leila Shams, and I'm your host today. I actually studied architecture at the University of Texas at Austin and got my professional degree, a bachelor in architecture, back in 2006. When I was a student at the university, I learned about Hadidi and Hadidi. Architecture is a very male-dominated field, and at the time, they'd made a huge name for themselves with their innovative and eye-catching designs. And finding out that they were two Iranian women was mind-blowing to me. So anytime I'd visit New York City, I would visit a coffee shop they'd designed, the Juan Valdez flagship coffee shop, and I was so enamored by that design. This past summer, I decided to move to the city for a few months and escape the Texas heat with my family. So the first person I contacted when I decided to do this was Gisu Hariri. I asked if she'd been open to an interview with me about her upbringing, how she and her sister developed the confidence to start an architecture firm, and much more. She graciously agreed and invited me to her beautiful New York City home for some chai and conversation. I'm so excited to share that conversation with you today. I hope you enjoy. Gisu Hariri, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to see you and have you in New York. Yes, same. So I was telling you, this is my second in-person interview, so I'm very excited. And we've been talking a little bit before this, switching back and forth between Farsi and English, but now we'll just do English so that our audience can understand. So it's so exciting to be here today. That's perfect. The only thing is I won't guarantee I still don't switch between English and <laughs> yeah, That's okay. But okay. I've been a fan of your work for a really long time. I think I told you in my email when I used to visit as a student, I, I would look up the coffee shop that you and your sister had made and I would always go to that coffee shop. <laughs> that is so amazing. That coffee shop was made a long time ago. <laughs> But what was fantastic was that we worked with the coffee growers of Columbia and this was their headquarters and they decided not only they would have their offices in that building but they would also make a store that sells their coffee which made sense and we got connected with a Colombian architect who liked our work and recommended that we work together and so we designed that coffee shop it was a fascinating fascinating actually experience for us how In New York City, you would have these Iranian architects <laughs> connecting with Colombia and Colombian architects and create something completely new for New York. Right. So it was fantastic. That is amazing. And as an architecture student, I studied architecture. I started in 2001. But at the time, there weren't a lot of female architects. Even now, there are a lot of female architects to look up to. And you and your sister, even then, were so much in our consciousness and we knew about you. And it was so exciting to me to see Iranian women architects in New York. It meant a lot. Well, that's very, very exciting <laughs> to hear and means a lot. But that was also the experience we had. I'm the older of the sisters. And when I came to United States to study architecture, everybody asked me, you know, 
How did you find the culture? Was it different? What was something that you had to adjust to? Honestly, somehow the American culture that we learned or understood came to us from TV programs, <laughs> movies, which turned out to not be true in a way. And so all the stuff that we had seen somehow was normal because we knew that was going to be the case. What was very strange to me was coming from a culture that the division between male and female existed as long as I was there. And you dealt with it almost every day. I did go to a all-girls high school, and there were a lot of harassments on the streets for the younger teenagers and women. So it wasn't just in school, but you would go out to the bazaars, to the public spaces. And because of this, I guess the word now they're using is apartheid situation, there was always tension and friction, and you almost had to guard yourself all the time. And so I thought, you know, when you come to United States or to the Western countries, especially in college, and my expectation was that this division wouldn't be there. You would get into a classrooms that maybe half and half are female and male. You would have professors that are uh, female. And that was a shock to me. I, when I realized, you know, first day of classes, there were no women architects that were teaching us. So everything we learned was like one-sided. And then also among our colleagues and among our class in architecture program, you know, there weren't many women. Maybe each class had maybe two, three, four women. And so that was a shock for me to realize, oh my God, you know, why is architecture this way? This is something that we all love and we should celebrate. And it wasn't that way. I don't know if in other colleges it was the same or not. But, you know, this was a very liberal Ivy League school, Cornell University. You would imagine that it would be many more percentages of women in each school, but it wasn't the case. Right. Well, I've heard you talk about a lot that it's just a male-dominated field from top to bottom, you know, the construction industry is very male-dominated, engineering male-dominated. And I think the statistics are that only 10% of women that even go through architecture school end up getting their licenses. So even a small number enter and a small number remain in the field. That's correct. I just think it's because the environment becomes not so friendly, not so much accommodating women. And so that was the reason my sister and I pretty much from college years, decided we have to do something. We have to create maybe one office that would allow more equality. We right. never discriminated against, you know, having only male or female. Right. But at least, you know, we were open-minded about, you know, we want the best. The best could be male or the best could be a female architect. And we're very conscious when we had female architects in the office to realize what their needs are. I mean, we have to face it. We as women really, I think, operate very differently in terms of physicality, in terms of our emotions, in terms of our needs, in terms of we're wired differently. So at least that was our attempt. I'm happy that <laughs> you guys knew about it. Yes. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, how many lectures do you go? Six years of architecture school <laughs> and they're all from male point of view or male architects. I kept saying, how could that, there should be? There must be, there are some, 
I mean, obviously, historically, they were American architects that now we realize, or even European architects. But, you know, there were no books about them. The libraries didn't have women architects on their shelves. There were no discussions about them. There was no way for us to find out the differences or similarities or just, you know, to get information. Right. Which is still the case. Unfortunately, is this still the case? Yes. <laughs> Some baby steps. <laughs> but Dorud, everyone. Leila here with a quick message. If you're enjoying this conversation and would like to hear more like it, I highly encourage you to sign up for our newsletter. In addition to giving you updates about our interviews, we send out a weekly email where we talk about Iranian culture and the Persian language. The emails are short and sweet and just give you a few ideas to ponder and inspire you on your learning journey. You can sign up for that and find out a lot more about us on our website at chaiinconversation.com with chai spelled C-H-A-I. Now, back to the interview. I would like to go back to the beginning. I watched a fantastic the Iran International movie, movie about you. Yeah, yes. it was wonderful about yes. you and your sister. So a lot of this information is in there. But can you take us back to your upbringing? Where were you born? Where did you grow up? And what brought you to Cornell University? Both my sister and myself were born in the southern part of Iran, Ostan Khuzestan, the province of Khuzestan. That was because my father was in the Iranian oil company and he was an engineer and it was required for him to be near the oil fields. And so it was a very interesting time for us because we were not necessarily near larger cities of the south of Iran. And we lived in these kind of artificial, I would say, camps that only accommodated engineers and workers that were with the oil company. The beauty of it was that it was very much protected and safe because of the people who worked there. Sometimes there were foreign engineers, foreign consultants that also lived there with us. So it was like a interesting mix. A community. And it was a community of very educated people, Iranian right. people, also very interesting and educated American, we met people from Texas, we met people <laughs> yeah. from, you know, wherever the oil is, and they, they were experts about it. And so I say artificial because in a sense that it was a very secluded and separate from the rest of the Iranian, typical Iranian culture's right. upbringing. You're not in Esfahan uh, or Shiraz or right, Tehran. Right, right. exactly. Right. And so in that sense, it was, I would say it was very special. And, you know, what is fascinating is because there were not any other facilities near us, I would say until maybe much later when I was in high school, when we moved from the south, there were no museums, there were no galleries around us, there was, you know... There was no town to go shopping in. Normally, there were these stores that they would bring stuff from abroad for the consultants and the English-speaking people. We completely grew up on our own. It was beautiful. This kind of a seclusion allows you to become very imaginative. And my sister and I created our own games, our <laughs> own toys, our own world, because we had to entertain you know, ourselves somehow, if there is no 
playground or a park. And it allowed us to, because it was such a safe environment and we were not worried about going out, going on our bicycle in this little area that we lived, it was kind of just a little bit of, I would say, idyllic in a way, campsite. We were allowed to do anything we wanted to do. We were avid bicycle riders (laughs) and would compete with the guys and see who will fall down first. <laughs> we, we became swimmers because that's all there was. You would go swimming and, again, compete who's going to be first. So we grew up pretty much not aware, I would say, of these differences between genders because we were all mixed there. And there was only few of us at the same age that, you know, we hang out together. And we became fearless. We began to concentrate on nature. And, you know, the nature in that part of the world was, you know, crickets and how they jump and what sound they make. And, you know, snakes, little garden snakes. And we were fascinated by them. Um, Lizards, we learned if you cut their tail, they still is alive. So these kinds of little memories that we have allowed us, I think, to become very curious about the environment we live in, because that's, that's all we had. I mean, we didn't have movie theaters. We didn't have computers. The TV only was for so many hours a day. So it's like interesting when I look at it now, it's like, what kind of a place did we live in? <laughs> But But it also gave you confidence? It did give us confidence. It gave us a blank, in a way, canvas to create whatever we wanted. And there was nobody to say this is right or wrong or you shouldn't do it or whatnot. So as I said, from very early on, our imagination had to keep us busy. You know, okay, now who are we going to bother or who who are we going to, you know, play with? It was a very, very good time, I would say, because I think... Everything goes back to the time that you you grow up at a very early age. And I have been sensitive about it, you know, with my own children, because I know how much it's not like the parents have influence, but how much you absorb and keep with you in the back of your mind that later on may come out, you know. And so when I think I had to start high school, I pretty much told my parents that I needed to go to a better school than we had in the neighborhood or around us. And I wanted to study mathematics because in our era, you know, there were only so many options. Either you go into math or sciences and become a doctor, or you would go into literature and become an artist. And to my father, being an artist was not an option. (laughs) He was Iranian? Yes. (laughs) what you're saying? (laughs) Iranian... um, Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's also uh, the country was definitely developing fast. Right. And we could see it. We could see like the amount of constructions and the amount of foreigners that would come and go and my parents, you know, befriended. We could see how much education had become more important. And could your parents speak English? Yes. Yes, both of them, because my father uh, did some a college degree back in England. And uh, my mother also, in fact, I think was even teaching a basic English to to some 
some of our friends and kids around us. So it was in our ears. I was, I would say I was not fluent in English because no one spoke English to us, <laughs> but we were exposed to it. Then I went to actually a boarding school to Tehran because my father couldn't just leave his job. And my sister was, you know, about had another year, year and a half behind me to catch up. So the year in Tehran in the boarding school was interesting because imagine from that kind of environment, I was put now in a new environment wow. that was a boarding school environment without my family, without my sister, that we were almost like, like you know, who do you play with? And it was run by Italian nuns, so Catholic. Wow. I was allowed not to participate in their religious ceremonies mm. and Sunday church things, but I was interested. I was, To me, I, it was a fascinating thing. They spoke Italian among themselves, so I started picking up some Italian, wow. even though they were not teaching it. And so I made some very good friends because there were other girls who were also in the boarding school for a year or two. And so then my parents moved to Tehran, finally. And then, you know, I finished my high school there and my sister came. So it was all uh, fantastic and fun and nice. great. <laughs> After I graduated, my father was adamant that I had to take the examination for the, the university's concours, concours yep. <laughs> which was hell from her. Because we did, I mean, the funny part was we didn't have many universities in Iran. Right. It right. was at that, you know, there were three, four maybe in the capital and then one in Shiraz. I mean, each major town maybe had one. Right. And Very the number of students and people who wanted to go to university was by far more than the capacity of the universities. Right. So I kept telling my father, you know, I really think I want to go to abroad to right. study. So what is the point of doing this exam? Yeah. <laughs> and he said, I think he wanted to torture us. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. He said, you have to take the concourse so you would appreciate other Iranians <laughs> who get into college. And okay. I said, I truly appreciate whoever. <laughs> They're geniuses. And so it was interesting. So finally, I came to United States and ended up at Cornell University to, you know, study architecture. So age 12, I wanted to study architecture because I thought, you know, look at the amount of buildings that are going on. Everybody would talk about it. My father was very interested in construction and in building. And we did make Actually, our last house, we made it ourselves, and it was a custom home that an architect that my father hired made. So you get a little bit of a love for construction and right. understanding of how fascinating it is to put something together. The beauty of our old architecture in Iran, historic architecture in Iran, yes. also makes an impact on you. I mean... Summer times, you know, from south of Iran, we would go to visit my grandparents for about a month, month and a half mm -hmm. in Isfahan. So it was me and my sister with my mother and just grandparents. My father would stay behind, you know, by the oil fields <laughs> in the <laughs> desert. And so from these sand dunes and desert and some rocky mountains, suddenly you go to a big city with these beautiful bridges and amazing domes and gardens and palaces. And it's like, I cannot, even today when I think about those days, you know, love and passion and excitement comes into my heart. I feel warm to even think about those, those places. So I think that also added 
to the fact that, again, my sister and I both experienced this kind of architecture that is part of a culture. It's not all, you know, blank and desert-like, but it also, how do you deal with that kind of environment, with the heat and with the sun and with the, the construction and, you know, People, of course, would always talk about it, you know, how thick a wall is and how you cannot do something or can do something. And, you know, the wind catchers and how there was this pride and being proud Iranians about invention, about creating things that didn't exist before and up to, you know, 2000 years later is still working and, you know, the way they irrigated their gardens and how they had these, you know, wells and how they would connect the water and could calculate that you would, you know, allow gravity from the higher point and take it and, you know, bring water. I mean, it's, I just always thought, wow, we Iranians are geniuses. (laughs) (laughs) It never occurred to me at the time, though, to ask what happened, you know, Why did the history not continue and it stopped? (laughs) Because the later, more modern construction and buildings did not have the same impact or same, in a way, intensity of the historic things. So one of the answers I have found after many, many years is that because the more modern buildings, and especially more modern public buildings, were being done by Europeans and Americans. Oh. <laughs> they had partners. They were always okay. local architects. But if you go in the depth and look at it, it was uh-huh. not necessarily all done by Iranian architects. Yes. Well, so you've said that you intended to come learn modern architecture and go back. And one of the really beautiful things you said in that interview, the movie that they made about you, at the very end, you say you never consider yourself an immigrant because you consider yourself a visitor here and you intend to still go back. Yes, it's the truth. Um, (laughs) And um, I think maybe for many Iranians, that may be also the case. Since I did not leave Iran after the revolution, I was already here in college studying architecture. In fact, I was doing my thesis when the revolution happened. It wasn't up to me and I was never put into a position to say, okay, decide, you know, are you going to stay This is the condition of, you know, what's happening in your country, or are you going to leave and go to the process of, you know, applying, you know, for a new visa or amnesty or whatever, you know, other Iranians went through. I somehow felt, you know, I've been basically, you know, five, six years now, been in the United States. I've studied, you know, in a great college. I have a fantastic degree. I have an opportunity, you know, to work here at least for a year or two. Why not stay and do that? So I finish my course and then I go back to Iran. But unfortunately, you know, as the government changed and Iran started stabilizing and had completely changed to what I was going back to rebuild and to help with and to modernize, I realized that perhaps it was not something that I was yet ready to, to confront. So I said, oh, okay, let's wait a year or two. <laughs> and so I, I stayed and worked and must say it was an amazing, even though architecture is very difficult, even though at the time I started working, we were 
Iranians, and at that time, the hostage-taking had taken place, and right. being an Iranian was definitely not something that was very much welcomed, mm-hmm. <laughs> because a lot of my Iranian colleagues are think, you know, that it's, it was heaven or it's amazing being abroad, right. because we didn't go through the issues and difficulties that they went through when the systems change and they had to get adapted to it. But we did have our own share of really crazy stuff here. I mean, I was still finishing my thesis. It was not done yet. I had not given it in when suddenly, you know, CIA and FBI and government agencies all came to university and asked for our passports. They were checking everybody's visa. You know, you couldn't renew your visa you had to go back and they were sending people back you know or away from united states i don't know where everybody ended up i was determined i had to get a job if i was going to stay you know you were allowed to have a year or two of i think internship or work visa and so it was very difficult time you know you somehow felt a country and a university that welcomed you and welcomed all the iranians suddenly was not so welcoming and in fact maybe even hostile oh. and how do you navigate you know you are a young 22 yeah. year old no one had told you anything i honestly for a long time had a lot of fear for someone that I was telling you grew up as a fearless yeah optimistic <laughs> optimistic confident. woman you just you know didn't know how to protect yourself in in every so aspect of life was your sister here with you too my sister was, okay. but my sister was still in college okay. so she had another year or two before she had to figure out well how did people in your workplace react to you how were people did you have friends that were not Iranian or what was your situation? Yes, I mean, all our colleagues were here and they were mainly Americans. And honestly, I have to say, to my surprise, not so many people reached out. And these are kids that you have sat at the same desk or near each other day in and day out because, you know, architecture school is 24 uh, hours. Day, there, night, <laughs> night, lots of nights. <laughs> there is definitely no break. But you know what? It, it wasn't this Iranian war. No one came and said, are you guys okay? Do you need my help? Can my father, you know, do anything for you? Uh-huh. It was, you know, it's as if we were not there anymore. And so that was uh, a bit of a heartbreak for me because I completely didn't expect it. But there were some professors who realized how dire the situation is. Like either you have to leave when your visa finishes in like September, or, you know, they have to figure out a way for you to either continue your studies or work for you so, you know, you could stay. And so one or two professors that we had, and I had, you know, relationship with her in terms of working on my thesis with, were very kind and definitely extended a hand to both me and my sister. So my sister ended up, instead of graduating a year after me, to kind of jump from the bachelor's degree to study urban design okay, city planning, because that was offered. And in a way, she always wanted to do that, but it was a good time to extend her studies to stay longer. It was hard times because we were all very worried. We were worried about our families. We were worried mm. about our parents. We were worried about how we can 
and make the ends meet because there was no money coming in. I have to tell you, when I went to Cornell University, Shah of Iran actually had put a fund together for Cornell to allow a lot of Iranians to go study there. They wanted the most brilliant Iranians to graduate from the most brilliant schools. Mm -hmm. Harvard had that, MIT had that. And, you know, for them to turn around within, you know, a period of very short time, it was an eye-opening. And then we saw what happened to the government of United States. They turned against Shah of Iran and wouldn't allow him you know, to come. A lot of people had to interfere. The man was sick. I have seen things that I now understand how fragile everything is in life and never to take a day for granted. Right. Because you just never know what happens tomorrow. Wow. So be ready, everyone. (laughs) It's true. Be optimistic. Spread love and happiness to everyone you know. And be a good person because those who have it may not have it tomorrow. Those who don't have it may have it tomorrow. So things change without anything being under your control uh, or anybody's control for that matter. Well, I think about that a lot, you know, here, save money, invest in the stock market, do this, this, this. And, you know, people then just lost everything just in a minute. That to me is so scary. Exactly. (laughs) But you've been through it. You've been through a pandemic. Now this is off topic. There's a lot. You're right. They can change overnight. Exactly. Pandemic (laughs) is another thing. Who would know? I mean, I never... For three years, you know, and I was in the most amazing place of the pandemic was New York City. I actually experienced it. It wasn't like I was sitting somewhere in the suburbs or a right. home away and, okay, now we don't go to work. Center of the city. It was center of the city. I was in the middle of a project that was under construction. Within oh. a day, they shut down where wires were hanging. To me, it yeah. was fascinating. I just couldn't believe it. I said, okay, you will have a little bit of time, you know, they give you a week to go close things and stop the construction. No, a day later, the contractor wasn't there. The workers weren't there because they were not allowed to. (laughs) Wow. And they were not the, you know, the first responders. So um, yeah, it it was fascinating. (laughs) A whole nother podcast on that. (laughs) We'll do that another. So then you were here with your sister and then you kept working and you were in New York City then too? Yes, after okay. I graduated. You've been in New York City this whole time. No, I did my first internships actually in California, okay. in San Francisco, okay. because at the time that I graduated, again, one of the things that was unexpected was that there are, every four years, there is a recession in, <laughs> in America. Yeah. So one place that was, you know, uh, flourishing and had a lot of work or construction going on may have nothing wow. <laughs> at that time. Right. So New York City was at the point that uh, really they were not hiring because, you know, everybody was sitting put to see what's going to happen economically. And so a friend of mine and a colleague said, you know, Oh, come to, you know, California is fantastic. And okay. San Francisco is a hub for technology and everybody's building. They're building housing there and, you know, you'll, you'll be in good hands. So I did go to San Francisco and must say I had, again, another key experience of my life because not only I was on my own and I was earning and learning how to make things and do architecture, I also ended up realizing that after six, seven years of architecture, 
I really had not a whole lot of knowledge about construction and had thought to myself, because they would ask me to do tasks that I had no idea what they were even talking about. (laughs) And so I said, you know what? And of course, I blamed myself and my family that, you know, we didn't have a shop and my father (laughs) didn't teach me how to use a saw and I didn't cut things. And what kind of architecture is this? If you don't know, you know, (laughs) how to nail or screw things together and what is the names of these things? And then, you know, my actually bosses, my, who became my friends and mentors, they told me that, you know, they cannot ever teach everything yes. in such a short period of time. Right. You know how to think, you know how to design, you have an idea about what you want to do. So this is complete and you should not take that for granted. But if you want to learn about construction, there are places you can go to. I was very excited. Uh-huh. And so they helped me find actually a place in Arizona. And I ended up doing, I think it was maybe a six month of, it was, they would offer it for like a month or two months of summer internships. But I ended up staying longer because I applied. I loved it so much. So I ended up first going to Taliesin to yeah. work with Frank Lloyd Wright. Frank Lloyd Wright was not alive. His wife, Oligvana, was running the place. And I thought, I loved it. I walked in and when I saw the construction and things that they were doing and, you know, there right. were people walking around. You had chores. I don't know, to do kitchen duty. Wow. I just, it, was, it was amazing to me. Okay. I thought, how fantastic. Because, you know, you have graduated and you don't have a whole lot of money. Right. And you're not working. You want to go somewhere where, you know, you learn from them, but you give back in a different way. So right. I learned, you know, you can do kitchen duty and clean, you know, bathrooms. And they teach you, you know, or give you materials to make things. And so, unfortunately, that didn't work out because Oligvana could not interview. I think she was not there that the day I, day I went. And so someone there said, well, you know, it's very short period of drive. And, you know, you know, this Italian architect, Paolo Soleri, oh, he's building Arcosanti. a whole town in Arcosanti. Amazing. Okay. I was so excited. I drove to Arcosanti and I said, I'm here to stay. I'm not going anywhere. I don't have a place. Okay. I've come all the way from, you know, San Francisco <laughs> and they were shocked, you know. Wow. And uh, so they said, sure, they put me in one of their tents. <laughs> it was really, it took me in terms of environment back to where I grew up. It was mm. desert. It had the beauty and silence right. of nothing around you except you know, earth, except sky. And it was hot and all of that. In the meantime, they were constructing things with concrete. So I learned their techniques of how they make these vaults and domes and how you clean it and how you carry sheetrock. (laughs) I never was asked, you know, like, how do you, how do people take these big, you know, like four by eight sheets of, you know, drywall on their shoulders and put them together. How do you screw them in? It was amazing. So I did get a a little, you know, sense of construction and idea of making architecture, not just being a 
you theory. know, kind of a theory or exactly a drawing. Now I could put both sides right. together. And I'll, I will link on this podcast, Arcosanti. I think we're getting very much. <laughs> nerding on the architecture but it's 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 very interesting so you came back to uh and then i came back to new york and then what gave you the confidence with your sister to start your own practice so my sister had graduated at that time and now she was working so again everything was better economically and there was a lot of construction people could borrow money and i came back to a different new york and she was already you know employed so she helped me connect with other people she knew and I, I got a job. So we started each, we shared an apartment because even in those days, 40 yeah. years ago, it was very expensive. New York has always right. been expensive. Right. But you know, the energy of New York, the kind of diversity of people. I never felt for the first time I was not, you know, from here. Everyone was from somewhere else. I mean, in fact, it was strange if someone would say, where are you from because of your accent or something? Right. We would kind of get offended and say, and where are you from? Because no <laughs> one was from here. Right. Everyone was from either different states, different cultures. And so I loved it. This buzz of the city that wakes you up, you know, in the middle of the night and you still hear the hum because someone is working was very, very exciting to me. So I as we were working for other firms and learning, again, business of having an office and how the process of work with a client would work, which, again, is another architects should go and get MBAs. None of us know <laughs> yeah. how to run a business. Right. So that was something we were observing in, from two different offices. And we started thinking, let's do things on our own because, you know, Honestly, no matter which office that you love, you end up, no one would think like you. Right. And so a lot of architects, unfortunately, are either unsatisfied or <laughs> frustrated. Right. Because after so much of, you know, studying and learning, you're not allowed to express what you think is going to be bad. Absolutely. And so... That's when we said, okay, you know, then we must, let's try it on our own. Yes. So at six o'clock, seven o'clock, when we were allowed to go home, we would pack our stuff. And I cannot tell you the excitement of kind of getting home because she oh. would come from one place. I would go and basically we had no furniture. We had made desks and then like <laughs> a library and like, you know, either do a competition together or make drawings or Think of, you know, what is the next project we wanted to... That's how we slowly started and eventually started getting clients. I tell you, this is a very funny story if there are some architects thinking, <laughs> but I use it also to make a point to my own daughters. Nothing ever comes to you in a package that is perfect. Here we were doing two different kinds of jobs, but they each helped one another. And so a lot of times young people have to realize, you know, you need to put that effort in if you love something that you are doing. Mm -hmm. And as I was selecting, believe it or not, stone, and this is, we are talking about thousands of square feet of stone for a lobby of some project we were doing, I had to go to a marble yard and open each package that stone came in to reject the ones that were, you know, had like some coloration, discoloration or some parts that, you know, was not acceptable. 
and then the rest of it put aside to be sent to the job site. Right. So imagine I did this maybe for a whole three weeks, two weeks. I became very friendly and friends with the marble yard guys <laughs> because they were, had never seen, they thought this was the craziest thing. Why would they send you from morning to night to just select different pieces of marble? Yeah. I said, well, because, you know, we are architects and, you know, the quality has to be perfect. Our client will not accept it if it has like one vein oh. that is not this. Based on that friendship, we got our first project. Wow. Someone had gone to the marble yard, some lady actually who lived down on Mulberry Street, oh. and she wanted to redo her kitchen. And they didn't have an architect. They said to her, you need an architect to come and tell us, give us the template for your countertops. Okay. And she said, well, can you recommend one? I don't know an architect. They recommended us. <laughs> I mean, I was in a state of shock. Somebody called and she said, like, you know, so-and-so, Mr. McCarty asked me to call you because I wow. want to redo. To redo her kitchen, I made her believe she needs to redo the whole apartment. Wow. <laughs> So this is how we started. So at night, we would run home and do this project with a client. <laughs> and then at, in the mornings, we would go to our job. So yeah, this you is... You just this never is, know. You never know. So my daughter was an editor and had worked for different publications and online magazines. And so she got to a point that she felt she had reached a level and came to that maybe she was not going further. She, she asked me, she said, Mom, I feel a little nervous. Should I quit my job and do what I have always wanted to do, which mm -hmm. is writing? And I said to her, don't quit your job yet. And I gave her this story. Right. Because the jobs that you're working with will later on become your connections to other people that Absolutely. you need for your writing. Absolutely. And, you know, she, she was good at it, and she started doing that. So at nights, she started putting things together and right. writing and meeting people and making connections until she was ready. And then, you know, she one day said, okay, this is it. I'm going to become an author <laughs> from now on. That's and wonderful. So, yeah. And she's published her novel. Yes. Wonderful. Yes, <laughs> we were very excited. So I don't know if you want to go back to language. I think every field almost has its own language. Engineering obviously has its own language. Computer has its own language. Architecture for sure has its own elements and language that it's difficult for other people to understand. So language is important in general, I feel, in all the arts and fields that we work in. But to me, coming from Iran, Language is about your culture. And the reason I say this is because when we were growing up, we were constantly reminded how all the invaders that came to Iran, i.e., you know, Mongols and Arabs and so on and so forth, Turks, the way they could have changed Iran was through their language. And they tried very hard to impose their own language. And through Ferdowsi and Shahnameh, which is an amazing piece of, you know, literature, I think it's the longest poem or longest work in, in the way that it was put together. We learned that the only way that a culture could remain independent is through their language. So in that sense, I have always tried to encourage my daughters, that 
learning your parents' language, your heritage, and Iranian language, because it is so rich in terms of its literature, is a must. You have to learn, not necessarily to speak Farsi, but to understand Farsi. So understanding for me was the most important thing. And so sure enough, my daughter's first novel has a lot of Persian words in there. It is called A Hundred Other Girls. And she talks very clearly about being an Iranian girl, even though she's born and raised in New York City, studied in New York City, has visited Iran a few times. But how you identify yourself, I think, is important. And according to her, representation is important. We talked about architecture not having women. Again, it's about representation. We are not saying one is better than the other. But to hear, to understand another point of view that happens to be half of the, you know, world's population. I mean, it just mind-boggling to me that it's not important to some people. Right. It's very important. Right. Well, your husband is Iranian. Yes. So did you speak Farsi at home or how did you keep them speaking the Persian language? I think it was very difficult also for both of us to keep it up. So, you know, you're outside, you know, you the other side of the brain comes on, you come yes. home and the other side with the children. Well, one, one point I also want to make that I think is important is that your professional language becomes something. And then so right now as an architect, you're language is English. So when you're speaking about architecture, I noticed in the interview to your sister, a lot of times she was like, the site, the right. <laughs> construction, yes. all these words came up because that's the language that we studied in. And it's Correct. hard to be a professional Correct. in the different language because you don't have that vocabulary too. So, so true. Also, you part. know, after so long, I mean, 40 <laughs> yeah. something years, you become rusty, both in English and in Persian. <laughs> yeah. So it's sure. like you, you switch between, between the two. But yeah, both parents are Iranian. Of course, grandparents were around. Oh, and did they so move on. to, I, I wanted yes, to ask, they yes, moved here yes, too. They eventually, okay. yes, it was my mother's wish. She said, if you somehow have a child, I'll come and help you. Nice. And I, <laughs> I, yes, I said, mom, yes, grandchildren are here. Time for you to come. Wonderful. <laughs> and they moved, you know, to New York, actually. Wow. And so the kids did have my parents oh. near them and... It was heaven and they learned a lot from them. But I want to say that even though, you know, it's hard and it was hard even for us. I don't know how parents who are mixed parents, yeah, handle this. I just want them to know even for us, it was very difficult. I had a doctor, I think they're the kids doctor that we were discussing, you know, how to teach language from early on and speak to them or read to them in Farsi or English and so on. I was told that it's good for them to hear the sounds and hear you speak and maybe listen to music and, you know, things of that nature. But they said, don't insist on it because kids who start from, you know, before preschool in multi-languages, Often their brain cannot switch and speak English when they go to preschool. Mm. So a lot of Iranian parents had difficulty because their kids felt isolated. If you cannot communicate it with other children, you feel shy. I don't know. So it did have at the time that, you know, I was reading about it and discussing it with their doctor. 
it did have issues. It could create issues. So they said to me, either each parent or you have to speak in one language. You cannot switch back and forth. And so I found it very interesting. And since I was working very long hours and so was my husband, we had a caregiver for the kids that they grew up with, which was a fabulous, fabulous, I call her angel. She was an angel that saved really my life and my children loved her. And I started speaking in English only because I wanted my caregiver to understand how I answer my children, how I run my household. And so the conversation was always in English. And so it was it even with my husband. I wanted the kids to understand what we discussed, how was your day. I didn't want it to be something that they had no idea what parents are talking about right. or is something behind their back. And so what we did was we had a teacher, Onuma Aslani, if she's listening, <laughs> I owe her, you know, a lot. This woman was amazing. Her kids were grown up and she was teaching like almost a community of Iranian children. And she would go privately to their homes. It wasn't like a school that you had to, I don't know. It was difficult yeah. Sunday morning right, or Saturday right. morning. The kids had a day off. I mean, you want to make it something that, you know, the kids want to do right. as opposed to dread, you know, doing. And weekends are weekends and it's like playtime and so on. So I met with Khanum Aslani and she said to me, not to worry, I'll come to your home. And my method of teaching is very different than others, which I realized actually in general methods of teaching language has changed. Yeah. It's not like copying and trying to read books right. and things like that. It's more phonetic with sounds and in a way play she started. So she would come and she asked me to put certain things, you know, books, notebook, pencil, I don't know, a ball. And she would, you know, say, toop, ball and would play with them like about five minutes with the ball. Right. That ball always was a ball to them or that, you know, right. book was always a book to them. And so they learned by playing and they loved it. They actually couldn't wait wow. when they were younger because that was, I wouldn't sit down and, you know, play ball in the middle <laughs> of the apartment with them. Right. But she did. Wow. And then she also taught them, you know, how, you know, to say, welcome, have tea, Iranians. So it was also culture that was nice. being infused. They really enjoyed it. It gave them something that I think a lot of Iranian American children miss. And that is having, again, a community or an identity. Mm -hmm. When they were going to school, they were all kinds of clubs in their high schools mm -hmm. and middle schools. Jewish club that, you know, a community of Jewish girls would right. get together. And I don't know, they cooked or talked <laughs> about their, you know, holidays and what is the essence of Judaism and all of that. They had a Latin club. They spoke Spanish. They brought food. There was no Iranian club. There was only like four or five of them in each of these schools. So they somehow wanted to become part of something and it was not available to them. Right. So we tried to create that 
realizing that and noticing how important that is to them, uh, we try to do that from home, at home. And so a group of also parents who had their children being taught by this lady who would go from the apartment <laughs> to the other apartment, there was no break with the Iranian wow. teacher. Like if you would summertime go somewhere, she would come with you <laughs> or would somehow take the train wow. and come to Connecticut, you wow. know? okay. She said, you cannot. This is not something you start and you stop. Nice. It's continuity. And so as they got older, it was like, oh, my God, we need a break. Can we have a summer break? <laughs> I said, go and tell you know, your <laughs> teacher. <laughs> I am not taking that responsibility. <laughs> and the minute they would see her, they would melt because Aww. she wanted them to learn the language wow. so bad. And so they are both, I would say, at this time, pretty fluent. Wow. Fluent in a sense that they understand completely, right. which is bad for me and my husband because we cannot <laughs> speak anything that right. behind their back. But at the same time, it's such a pleasure to a point that my younger daughter, when she went to college, to university in Britain, in University of St. Andrews, in UK, she actually studied international relations, but as her second degree, she studied Persian. Wow. How, who would know <laughs> Farce? And she would... Someone's there, um, what's his name, who wrote 1921 to present. He's written a lot of books about Iran, you know? Right. The professor, um, As isn't it also Aslan? Yeah, maybe. They had brilliant. Yeah, it's a big university for Iranians. Brilliant yeah. professors there. Adi Ansari, that's it. Adi, Adi Ansari. Correct. I think, she, yeah, I think she also studied with him. She was introduced to not just, you know, language as a language, but now it was a... The state stakes were higher, and wow. she was learning poetry. Wow. I mean, the day that she texted me, Mom, I have to translate Shoname. <laughs> I don't know how. Why did Ferdosi wrote this way? Oh, my goodness. I said, this is real Persian. You better learn it. <laughs> so she asked for help, and I went to look at it. I had a hard time myself, too. <laughs> so I said, we are both going to be students. That of made you learning. so proud, I'm sure. That's amazing. It made me so proud. I just couldn't believe it. And I have to say, too, we're sitting in your beautiful home and just uh, looking around. There's so much Iranian art. And That's correct. So they've grown up with it. They grew up with it. Yeah. Yeah. They, you know, they know, you know, language and the way you also write and do calligraphy is is something visually so important. And right. also, it's an expression, again, of a culture. And, you know, I started also... So from younger age, yes, they were exposed to architecture, Iranian architecture, mm -hmm. to the art, Iranian art. So they had all the museums. You know, I kept telling them, I had no museum. Now we have so many. <laughs> yes, exactly. Every weekend we have to so go see... Yeah. <laughs> so they did, they did. So that's what I'm trying to say. You just expose your children yes. to what you think is important, but not necessarily something that, you know, you think they have to learn. Eventually it will. And this is what actually I learned from the Farsi teacher. Maybe they were third grade or fourth grade. And I said to her, you know, all these years, I mean, this is like they started with this teacher at age four or five, and this is third grade. So these are now five, six years later. 
I said, but they don't speak when my parents talk to them in Farsi. They're very hesitant. You know, is there like, do you think this, they should continue? She said to me, not to worry. This is all in their brain and in their ears. Oh. One day they will just going to surprise you and start talking. And it, they sure did. Wow. One after another, suddenly, you know, I saw them, you know, talking to me in Farsi in front of their friends. They started talking to their grandparents in Farsi, but it took a while. So that's what I'm saying. Don't get disappointed. Well, I think this is a good point. I want everybody to listen to this because this is the the first iteration of this podcast was actually raising Nimrunis. Right. And I interviewed a lot of people uh, who are married to non-Iranians and trying to figure out how to get their kids right. to learn. And everybody was very discouraged. Everyone that I interviewed right. said, your kids should speak and you should talk to them only in Farsi. And I would say, okay, well, do you? And they said, no. Do your kids speak? No. But everybody, you know, has these aspirations and they don't want to force their kids to do it. And everyone's just confused. And I love this approach. It's a approach of kindness to the ch children, right, right. Uh, taking their feelings into consideration, not being forceful, keeping family cohesion. Correct. But also trusting that one day they'll come back yes, to it. Yes, exactly. I that, love it. For me, this was, yes. <laughs> it's beautiful. One of thing those things that I said, I have to trust this teacher. I'm not a teacher. And again, you know, it became so much easier also on us. We were yes. speaking English because we day in and day out, you're speaking with people in English. You're speaking right. to their teachers. It was always the extracurricular activities as a fun thing to do. And, you know, for example, you have to instill pride into your children of being Iranian. And that is the most important because pride is not something, you know, teachable. Right. But the kids learn it from you as this emotional gesture. And so I would, you know, tell my children about the difficulties that, you know, as a woman growing up in Iran, what was like, but the beauties, I would, you know, cry when I would read a poem and they didn't know why mom is crying is because the poem was so beautiful, you know. And, um, you know, and I kept telling them, it's so my daughter, even maybe she was five years old, the one who's now an author and a writer. She did not write. She was still learning how to write English. And because I had said to her, you know, I think Persian poetry is in every Persian's DNA. Yes. This is not not something that, you know, you are good at it or whatever. It's there. Yes. Some people are gifted and this, the poems will come out. So one night she called me, mom, mom. I don't know, it was maybe nine o'clock, 10 o'clock at night. She was in her bed. I ran in there and she said, I think something came to me. And she actually recited a poem. <sighs> it was in English, uh -huh. not in Farsi. Wow. But I said to her, see, I think you are a poet. <laughs> And her first publication was from her middle school when they were asked to write a poem. Wow. And the teacher selected hers and we saw it in the paper. So can you imagine? <laughs> These are the things that, you know, the pride takes you a long way. Right. And we went to their school. And when I say we, me and couple of other parents who were also Iranians, and we discussed with the school that we need to talk a little bit more about Persian culture. History right. of the world didn't start with the Greeks. It goes way back. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so they were like, we'd love to hear more about your culture. How do we do this? 
So we requested perhaps, you know, some ways to introduce the Persian culture in like in the Nowruz when we're celebrating or, you know, in the middle of the winter. Because a lot of also, it's the funny part, I don't know if it's a coincidence or not, you know, these historical celebrations of every culture and every religion somehow overlaps. Yes. How is it that we all have it almost in the similar you know, yeah. period of time? Because they go way back. Right. And so we, we decided that, you know, we will make an effort to also teach that to the rest of each class that our kids were in. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we would play, you know, Persian music and the girls would wear Persian <laughs> for clothing and, you know, take Persian food for the class. So they loved Nowruz. It nice. was like everybody knows Nowruz. Right. For the birthdays, we made sure we play, you know, Tavalludet Mubarak. So most of my daughter's friends know <laughs> yeah. at least Mubarak, Mubarak. Right. <laughs> uh, happy birthday in Farsi. Right. So it's like little by little you expose people and they also feel, oh, they have something very special right. that others maybe don't have. Otherwise, they try to assimilate and become something, you know, to be accepted by, you know, until, you know, later in, in life where they figure out, oh, it's okay, you know, <laughs> I'm Persian, I'm Middle Eastern, I don't know, and, you know, it comes out in their work. And what uh, is your, what's your relationship now with the Iranians in New York, with the diaspora? Unfortunately, I think at least in the city, New York City, where I live, the numbers of people that I guess I know or are friends with are limited. There are more, obviously, in other boroughs and in Long Island and in Connecticut tri-state area because I see them in protests and, you know, yeah. <laughs> places that we all go and it's like, wow, you know, it's a lot of us. Yeah. One of my hopes and one of my dreams have always been to create actually a center of a sort, a home or a house or a foundation where it would be solely for Iranians to get together, to have their cinema, to have their exhibitions, to just, you know, give an opportunity to some who don't otherwise get a chance to, you know, show in major museums and, right. you know, so on. To create a place that, you know, instead of saying every Saturday or Sunday, let's go to Museum of Modern Art, you would say, let's go to Khane Iran or go to Barhang the Sarah. Barhang Sarah. <laughs> I know that has been in the back of also a lot of other Iranians in their mind, um, yeah. especially in California, there is a Barhang, um, I think, foundation. Oh, that's right, that's right. Uh, in but L.A. I just having been here for a while, I think one of the things is that Iranians are so good at working, quietly working in isolation. Right. And it seems like there's so many, I've met so many interesting people here and everyone's just work, doing amazing things on their own, you know? So. so I think that you put it out there. I think that it's only I, a matter of time. There just needs to be a little spark and you have amazing things going on here, obviously. I have, I have already, <laughs> yes. Also for our elderly, my parents, Yes. how much they would love. I mean, they go to the park, but they're at oh, an age yeah. that if there was some friend who would go to a place, they could play takhde or, yes. you know, chess, or they would love it, or a place that, you know, they could get tea and some Persian yes. sweets. I mean, we do need a place. And I think it's very unfortunate that 
our community has never come together after 40 years right. to create. First, it was like security may, may be an issue. Okay, now security <laughs> is not an issue anymore. Right. Then it was who will run these places. We have experts. We have the new generation of like yourself, like my kids, who are brilliant. They can all run anything <laughs> you want right. to do. And they're actually you know, desperate to have that. As a New York community, for a, maybe this carried on for five, six years, maybe, came together to celebrate Nowruz with our children. So, you know, the main goal was, well, we always celebrate Nowruz in our homes, and we right. know that, but as a community together. And, you know, there was a place that you would rent and, you know, food and everyone would, this potluck, bring things. Right. But the most fun part of it was that every year, a person that maybe had was expert in theater, and we did have a couple of theater directors, mm -hmm. or a person who, you know, was in the arts, would come together and create a program with the children that Ooh. they had to go together and right. practice. Right. And then put on exhibition or show to the parents. Right. The kids loved oh. it. They still remember the days, you know, that they had to go and sing in Farsi right. or mom, why did you make me become a boy? I'm like, I didn't make you become a boy. The lady over yeah. there said you have because they didn't have boys. There were more girls. So who cares? You know, they put... So... One person had to become Haji Firuz. They loved the <laughs> Haji Firuz. It was much more participatory right. than just going and eating and, you know, seeing something. And we have videos that even up to this day, the, <laughs> the kids looked, look. Right. And we sit down as a family and say, wow, look at that girl now. She's a scientist somewhere. Look <laughs> at her. Oh, my God. She has a restaurant. <laughs> so all these children that you had no idea where right. they were going to end, they have a bond together right. that, you know, continues going. Well, I yeah. think I, I see the I think it'll be only a matter of time. Yeah. And that we'll come we visit. Will, yes. <laughs> really nice. That we will have our Persian Farhang Sara or right. <laughs> Persian home for everybody, for the community to come together. Yeah, no. A lot of people have discussed and said, well, you know, we have Asia society. Right. Yeah, but Asia society is lovely. We go, yeah. we support them. They have had major exhibitions of Iranian art, but it's not every day. Right. And it's different. And, you know, it costs certain amount of money that maybe a lot of people cannot afford. Going to museums have become so expensive these days that right. I have to hesitate once in a yeah. while. <laughs> Is it worth it going and seeing it? Wow. And I just feel we could do so much more. Right. Not for us, not for me as a person, but to the generations to come, for this Gen Z generation that is thirsty to go there and hear someone else speak Farsi <laughs> and understand it or buy a book right. or show a book or do books. You know, it's just because we have so many talent. I mean, look at yes. even Hollywood. Look at the movies we yes. are putting out. It's amazing to right. me. So. Well, New York, you have work to do. <laughs> hear it here. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I th We covered so much. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you'd like to end on? I just want to say what you are doing is so important. <laughs> I mean, I think I wrote to you, I, I'm in love with the effort that you have put together. You tell me it's 10, 12 years that you are doing this. Again, anybody can try to do a podcast, but a podcast will not become a podcast. 
and you will not get yes that she gets. <laughs> Leila is one of a kind. She's an architect. She practices. And the love of teaching and the love of language and the love of being Iranian, again, I think it comes from what I understand from her mom That's right. and her aunt <laughs> who right. are pioneers in, you know, teaching Iranians who are in the United States. That's right. I think similar to Hanuma Aslani. Yes. <laughs> yes. We have to think as well. All this this generation of people who came and really right. carried on the tradition of speaking. Yes. Wonderful. Absolutely. It is your culture. Don't give up. Yes. Well, I appreciate <laughs> that. And I appreciate your beautiful approach to the art of architecture and to raising children. And I learned a lot from this conversation. So thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you. <laughs> and we'll yeah. post to every, or link to all of your work on this podcast and show where to find your Instagram, which is always so beautiful. The clothes that you wear and the, Oh my we God. didn't even get to that. There's, I know. We that's can, we, another we'll part. have a part two next time I come to visit. <laughs> I wanted to talk about that. <laughs> Did you? <laughs> that's why I wore this. I want to say language yeah, yeah. is so important. Now I'm wearing it. Okay, yes. And I'm advertising for so let's, it. Then <laughs> let's end on that. So tell me about what you're wearing. <laughs> so just like yourself, that is also an architect and educator and now a podcaster, I guess, mm -hmm. and doing multiple of things and also a mom, mom of three gorgeous <laughs> kids. I, uh, you know, have been thinking actually about fashion and architecture. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's something you study and then you try, you know, there are criticisms that architecture should not be fashion, which I agree. But architecture and fashion do have a connection because as the times change and the world changes, mm -hmm. the architecture changes and what we wear to live in those architecture or work in those places also changes. Yes. So there is no denying that. And as I had gotten into, actually, <laughs> fashions of the world, and of course, Metropolitan Museum has now a huge or a program that shows fashion of artists and, you know, houses of fashion that are very well known. We have started seeing how these designers also, again, respect history, push boundaries to modernism, and the things that are relevant to human beings, you know, comfort, simplicity, and so on. So kind of the language is a little bit similar to the architecture yes. and the way I approach it in general. And so I began to see that a lot of the fashion that we use, because every day we have to wear something, it comes actually from other cultures. And this made me thinking, hmm, how is it that Iranians, and when I was also in Iran, it was the same, we always look to buy things that are from other places, right. especially Western cultures. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I don't know when it was in the early 60s and we were hippies. You know? right. We only looked at the West. I never you right. know, bought Chinese clothing or <laughs> Japanese you know, kimonos and all of that. Right. So it was fascinating to me to begin to think about it and how, you know, most of the Western art and culture in general comes from these ancient cultures, right. India, China, Persia. And then they are reanalyzed and looked upon and based 
at the time that they come out, they go through a transformation that become modern. And that transformation and translation in general is very difficult to do for any artist or a designer. And most people, in a way, copy what they see or what existed before. They cannot understand the essence of it to transform it into something new. Right. And most of the... Um, um, you know, uh, fashion designers that I respected and I looked upon actually were very much influenced by Persian culture. Um, Hermes, basically their ties and their patterns right. on their plates and on their clothing and on their Scarf. scarves is, is all, you know, Persian scenes that you, right. you know, you see in Shahnameh or, right. you know, Persian Ancient art and more Indian. I mean, Dior is, has even an atelier in India and they right. do all their beadings and all their different colors and saturated silks and so on that actually is being done in India. So they design. And this made me think how fascinating. I need to do something. So I decided it is maybe time for me to look at an opportunity to be inspired by Iranian. Again, forgive me, I don't say Iranian and I say Persian because to me Persia connects me to the old, okay. to the historic and to the ancient culture of Persia, Iran. And so when I started looking, I realized that some of the arts were like, for example, calligraphy is a sign, is an art of making signage. How many t-shirts that you have with, you know, polo on it? I mean, everything is a sign. Right. So some of the items that every, you know, fashion house puts out is very much about using, you know, uh, writing. Right. And so I said, well, this is fantastic. I want to do something with Persian writing. And so I started exploring, can we have a Persian writing on fabric, which is an interesting, you know, endeavor in itself because, you know, again, ink has to be right, the fabric has to be right. right. So I began to collect and discuss um, with some designers, young designers, Persian designers, and started designing a brand of clothing. Oh, wow. That is, so it's, this is real. This is a startup for okay. me. At age 65. Okay. Wow, nice. <laughs> so just like yourself, uh -huh. I'm beginning to think this is viable for the new generation, for my own generation, to put something out that gives us the opportunity not to just depend on the fashion that we get in the markets. Wow. And so in my studies that I did, there are actually, to my surprise, a lot of fashion designers in Iran but most of them, again, are influenced by West, okay. European, American, you know, uh, fashion houses. And then the ones who are trying to create some sort of a Persian clothing, it goes back to more like folkloric or right. handicraft, you know, things. Not modern. Not modern. Okay. And so I said to myself, well, this is, this is a niche opportunity and why wow. not? Yeah. And so I have now commissioned and collected about, well, 15 items. And I love every one of them. Wow. And I see them in your pictures yes, that you're always wearing. Yes, yes. Yeah. So 
Like what I'm wearing now is actually the word azado means free girl. Right. That is disintegrated. So you have the letters, but you can't read it unless you know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> so it has a mission. It's a little, I don't want to say it's political, but definitely it has a message. Yes. I went to miniatures and looked at, you know, old photographs of women and, you know, what it existed. So I'm now using pictures of Persians on my clothing. Oh, how nice. Uh, Silk screen. Will it be available for... Yeah, well, exactly. September, we are launching everyone. Stand by. Okay, well, good timing. Great. (laughs) Good timing, yes. So, so I'm very, very excited. We'll definitely link to that. This this yes, will come out in September. You, I will cool. let you know. Okay, Perfect. wonderful. That would be such well, a pleasure. Then this was perfectly timed launch podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll end it there. Thank you so much, Gisujan. We'll uh, link to that clothing. It will be out by the time this podcast is out. And it was such a pleasure to talk to you. Bye. Thank you. I hope you also proudly wear them. When, absolutely. when we launch absolutely. In, in September, they're definitely unique and make you stand out. But <laughs> you, you don't need that. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Gisu Hariri, a personal hero of mine. Make sure to check out the show notes to learn more about Gisu and learn more about Chai Conversation and our work. We have Persian language courses, lessons about Iranian culture, and much, much more on our website at chaiingconversation.com with chai spelled C-H-A-I. In addition, make sure to follow us on Instagram at chaiingconversation to get daily Persian language inspiration. And that's it for this week. Until next time, Hafez from Layla. Layla.